stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Psalm 115, verses 1 through 18. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 18. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord, he is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us, he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. All right, I think I've got my mute off. Um, again, I'd like to uh, start out by uh, praising God for the opportunity to be here with you and to thank you as a church uh, for your prayers and your support. And I want to thank you for inviting us to come back and share with you a little bit about uh, what God's been doing. Uh, this morning, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you'd like, I would encourage you to turn there now. Um, just for those of you who don't know us, my name is Steve Boutros. Uh, I'm an American emergency room doctor who, um, and my wife Kat is sitting there. She is a nurse. Uh, we spent, um, this church supported us when we were in the country of Benin from 2017 to 2020, where we helped a church in the North start an evangelistic medical ministry. And we are, Lord willing, expecting to be back there this coming April uh, to start a new mobile medical ministry in a different part of the country. And I want to thank you again for your prayers and support, and I want the church to know that God has been using you in many ways. And you've been a blessing and encouragement to us, but the, as a result of the ministry, uh, there are new churches that have started, there are people who have put their faith in Jesus, and God's name and God's gospel have been spread in that region. And so I want to praise God for that. Um, I just forgot to mention, uh, during the previous service, if anybody wants, uh, we brought some new prayer cards that we set on the table in the back, um, we had brought prayer cards here before. If you want a picture of us looking a few years older and me with less hair, you can help yourself. Um, I would also say if there's anyone who does not receive our email updates that we send out, when we're in Africa, we send them once a month. When we're in the U.S., we typically send them every other month. But if anybody wants to receive that and is not receiving that, uh, you're welcome to write your email address on the sheet of paper on the back table. Uh, so this morning, what I'd like to do is to share with you some things that God has been teaching me from Isaiah chapter 40. And so 
I am going to, we're going to be in Isaiah 40 this morning. I'd like to start out by saying that Isaiah 40, on first glance, might not seem like it pertains to evangelism or to missions at all. But there are some things that God has taught me about serving him through this passage, and I'm hoping to share some of that with you this morning. And so when we start out, it might not be clear why we are in this passage, but by the end, I hope that it will be clear. Before we look into God's word, though, let's pray. Our Father, we praise you because you are a great God, one who loves us and one who sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to save us from our sins. Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would use it to teach us, to make us more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray also that as I share these things, that all of the glory would go to you and to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would use these things to teach us, to make us better followers of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to start out reading in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to first read verses 12 to 17. And we're actually going to get, over the course of this morning, I'm, I'm hoping to get from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. And so I'm going to be talking quickly, so I hope that is not a problem. Uh, but in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12, and as we're reading this, I just want you to take a minute, just as we're reading, think about who God is here. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 12, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity." So here in this first section that we're looking at, in verse 12, we see the, um, God's amazing power. Picture this illustration that Isaiah gives here. It says in, in verse 12, God cupped his hand and he poured the oceans of the world into his hand to see how much water there is. And then the next illustration, it says God took a hand span, the distance from here to here, and he used his hand to measure the sky. And then the next expression, it says that God knows how much dust there is in the earth. He knows how much the mountains and the hills weigh. So we see the amazing power of God in verse 12. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see God's knowledge as well. In verse 13, he asks, and verse 14, he asks some questions. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who's able to direct God? Who's able to counsel God? Who's able to teach God? Who's able to show God anything? Who's able to instruct God? Is there anybody who can call God and say, Hey God, come over here, let me show you something. Of course, Isaiah doesn't need to answer these questions because we know the answers. The answer is nobody. And so Isaiah is showing us here not only God's power, but also God's knowledge. And he continues in verses 15 and 17 to show us God's size. 
Look in verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. Now, the expression a drop in a bucket has become an English expression now, but it comes from right here out of our Bible. And the idea of a drop in the bucket is if you have a bucket full of water and you let one drop of water fall into the bucket or you let one drop of water drip out of the bucket, is the bucket no longer full? The answer is no. The drop in the bucket is insignificant. And so when he says the nations are as a drop of a bucket, the nations here refers to the people of the world. And he's saying that in comparison with God, the people of the world are insignificant. Because God is so much bigger. God is so much greater. Then he gives another illustration. He says the nations are as the dust of the balance, the small dust of the balance. So let me ask you, if you go to the doctor's office to get weighed, and they're, they're going to weigh you, and they're going to have you step on the scale, do you notice them first lean over and dust off the scale before you step on it so that the dust doesn't make you look heavier? No, and why not? Because the dust is insignificant in comparison to your weight. And that is what Isaiah is saying here. All of the people in the world, in comparison to God, are insignificant. And then in verse 16, oh, well, in verse 15, he also says, he takes up the isles, so the islands of the world are very small compared to God. And then in verse 16, when it says Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, so Lebanon was a wooded area that's north of Israel that's covered in mountains. And so those mountains of Lebanon are, were covered in biblical days with cedar trees. And those cedars are massive trees. Many of them have tree trunk diameters that are greater than 10 feet. And this was the biggest forest that the people of Israel would have been familiar with. So what Isaiah is saying here is if you can take the biggest forest you can picture and take all the animals of that forest and offer them as a sacrifice and use all the wood of the forest to make a giant fire, that offering would be insignificant in comparison to the God it's being offered to. And then in verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. So here in this first section in Isaiah 40 verses 12 to 17, we see the greatness of our God. And Isaiah is saying this partly to set the stage for what he is going to say next. In verse 18 now, he asks a question. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? So he's asking, is there anybody that we can compare God to? And he goes on, in verses 19 and 20, and he shares with us what people in his day were comparing God to. In verse 19, the workman melteth a graven image, a goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. And so here, in Isaiah's day, there were people that wanted to compare God to idols that they had made. Now, when we think about what is an idol, 
the thing that makes it an idol is not the fact that it looks like a statue of a person. The thing that makes it an idol is that it is something that is replacing God. And it's not in these, in these illustrations, it's not just something that's replacing God, it's something man-made that's replacing God here. And so he says people in Isaiah's day were taking man-made things and those man-made things were to them as important or more important than God. And so he's asked this question, can God be compared with any man-made thing? And the obvious answer, which he gives in verse 21, is no. He says, have you not known, have you not heard, hath not it been told you from the foundation, I'm sorry, hath not it been told you from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, that spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he also shall blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the stump shall take them away as stubble. So here, Isaiah is saying, so he's asked this question, can God be compared with a man-made thing that could replace him? And then he says, don't you know how great God is? And he gives this illustration in verse 22. He said, God is sitting on the circle of the earth. What this means is, so you, you've got the earth. And he's saying, God is sitting above the earth, looking down at the earth. And it says, the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. There are people running around on the earth frantically, like grasshoppers, doing all kinds of things. But there are these little people in comparison to this big God who's sitting up above the earth, looking down. And all these people are running around. And it says, God, he stretched out the heavens as a curtain. He spread them out like a tent. So God is up there above the earth looking down at this world. And all kinds of activity is taking place in the world. But all of that activity is not stressful to God. It's not bothering God. God isn't worried about it. It isn't affecting his plans at all. He says in verse 23, if one of the princes of the world, in other words, if there's a government leader that is in God's way, it says God brings the princes of this world and the judges to nothing and to vanity. He says in verse 24, they're barely, the, the idea of this is what it says in verse 24, they're barely going to, like government leaders are barely going to spring up and start to do anything. And then if they get in God's way, what does it say happens to them? It says in verse 24, that, that, that mic is off, so I'll try it this one. <laughs> Sorry to get your attention. What God says here, he says, if there's a government leader that is standing in God's way, it says God will blow on them, and they fall over, and they blow away. So if we look at this illustration in Isaiah 40, it is saying that God is looking down at the earth in complete control, watching what people are doing, watching people running around as grasshoppers. And if there are people in the world, say there's a government leader that makes a law, God never says, oh, I was planning to do that, but the law changed, so now I can't do it. God never says, well, that person is standing in my way, so I guess I have to turn around and go a different way. 
God's plans are not disturbed or affected by what people are doing on the earth. So that's what we've seen so far in Isaiah 40. We've seen this illustration of God as a great God, as a powerful God. We've seen that there are people that are trying to set things up, man-made things, in place of God. And we're seeing that God cannot be compared with any of these man-made things. God is not stressed or disturbed by what people are doing. And so now, I'd like us to look in verses 25 and 26. In verse 25, Isaiah asks another question. To whom then will you liken me, or what, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. So in verse 25, God asks, who can you compare me to? And he, to answer the question, he says, look up into the sky, look at what I have created. And then he uses an expression. He says he brings out the host by their number. We'll see often in the Old Testament, we see this expression for the host of heaven to describe the stars that God has created. So God says, go outside and look at the stars. It says, God calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. So it says, God, he made the stars, he knows the names of the stars, and then at the end of the verse, it says, because he's strong in power, not one faileth. In other words, God is sustaining the universe, God is keeping the stars moving the way he wants them to move, by the greatness of his power. And so I'd like us to take a minute and think about what does this mean? What does it mean that God created the universe, and he calls the stars by their names. And just by the way, in Psalm 147, in verse 4, it says, he telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. That idea is not unique to Isaiah chapter 40. And so, but what does that mean if you think about who is the God, how great is this God to be able to call all the stars by their names? So before we think about the stars, just Look around you for a minute. We've got a room full of people here. These are all people that were created by God. Every one of you, every person in this room is an amazing being. I think most of you know that your bodies are made of building blocks called cells. How many cells do you think are in your body? It is, of course, more than a thousand. It's more than a thousand times a thousand, which is a million. It's more than a thousand times a million which is a billion. It's more than a thousand times a billion, which is a trillion. Every one of you in this room contains trillions of cells. But that's not all. Every one of those cells is made of many little parts called organelles. Every one of those organelles is made of many molecules. Every one of those molecules is made of many atoms. Every one of those atoms is made of many different positive and negatively charged particles. And so when you look around at these people, the people that God have created are amazing. And New York City has, what, nine million of us. So now, let's turn our attention in the other direction. 
Have you ever thought about what a small speck New York City is in comparison to this world? Have you ever looked at a map of the world and found New York City? How much of the world does New York City take up? Not very much. Now, have you ever thought about the size of this world in comparison to our solar system with the sun and the planets? Have you ever seen a picture of Jupiter? The planet Jupiter, if you look at it, it's pretty well known for the fact that on Jupiter, if any picture that you'll see of Jupiter, they, they usually will show you a picture of Jupiter's great red spot. The great red spot is a red circle when you see a picture of Jupiter on the planet. That red spot is a storm. It's a cyclonic storm, kind of like a hurricane. It was first observed by telescope about, telescope about 400 years ago. That storm has wind that's been spinning around at 300 miles an hour for the last 400 years. Did you know that you could take the entire Earth and put it inside of Jupiter's red spot? The Earth is tiny compared to the other some of the other planets. Now, you could take more than a million of the Earth and put it inside the Sun, and the Sun wouldn't be full yet. And so our Earth is not that big compared to our solar system and our Sun that God has made. So now the Sun is just an average-sized star in the Milky Way galaxy. Does anyone have any idea how many stars they think are in the Milky Way galaxy? The current estimate is 100 billion stars in our galaxy. 100 billion stars. Approximately, on average, the size of our sun. So now to figure out what does it mean when it says God knows the number of the stars and is able to call them by name. Well, in order to know how many stars there are, you would have to know how many galaxies there are. How many galaxies are there? Nobody knows. If we knew, then we'd know how many stars there were. But I looked up estimates on how many galaxies there are, and there are all kinds of estimates, but the lowest estimates start at 100 billion galaxies. And so when Isaiah says that God knows the number of the stars, God calls the stars by their names. Well, actually, the, the telling the number of the stars is in Psalm 147. But knowing the names of the stars that God is upholding all of those stars by his power, that he's controlling which direction they're moving and what they're doing. That gives us an idea, just a small glimpse of who our God is. And that is how Isaiah answered the question, or how God answered the question, who can we compare God to? The answer was, look at the stars. God is the one who knows how many stars there are, who knows the names of those stars, who keeps the stars moving in the right direction. So there is, of course, nobody, there is nothing that could be compared with him. So now, I'd like us to take a few minutes to think about the difference between serving that God and serving man-made things. As an example of serving the, or worshiping the inventions of mankind, I'd like us to look a couple of pages ahead in Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, we're going to read starting in verse 13. In, verse, in Isaiah 44, in verse 13, 
we read, The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass, and he maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. So here we have a craftsman who's making an idol. Continuing into verse 14, He heweth down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. So here this craftsman, this carpenter who's going to make an idol, he went out and he cut down a tree and he planted another tree, and God sends rain and this tree starts growing up. And then in verse 15, Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and part thereof he eateth flesh, and he roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. So here in this illustration, we see this carpenter. It says he went out and he cut down this tree and then he planted another tree and God sent rain and the tree grew up. And so he went out and he cut down this new tree and he took part of the wood of this tree that God made and he burned it to make a fire to heat his house. And he took part of the wood of this tree and he used it to cook his meal. And then he took the rest of the wood of this tree and he used it to make something and then that something became more important to him than the God who made the tree. And it says he falls down and worships it and says, Deliver me, you are my God. And I can, when I read this passage, I can just picture God looking down and laughing at that man. Like, what are you doing? I'm the one who made the tree. And you took part of it and used it for firewood. And then the rest of it you're worshiping is, as if it's got the power to save you or to help you. And yet, I read this, and I picture people doing the same thing with man-made things. Before the service started, we read in Psalm 115, in verses 4 to 8, there was, again, this illustration that we saw of the gods of the nations of the world. It says, our God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he pleased. And then it says, the gods of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have hands, but they can't do anything with their hands. They can't handle things. They have eyes, but they can't see anything. They have ears, but they can't hear anything. They have feet, but they can't walk. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They're not able to do anything because they're man-made. They're not able to be compared with the God who made everything. And yet, there are people who look at man-made things and they make that the most important things to them. And so, I'm going to ask you to think about something this morning. What are the most important things to you in life? Now, in order to answer that question, how would you know? Well, think about what takes up most of your time and your money. The question we need to ask ourselves, are we living for man-made things or are we living for our amazing God? There are some people whose goal in life might be to have a good career or to have a nice car or to have a nice house or to have a political office or to have something else, but these are all man-made things. And if that is our goal in life, 
then we could be compared to this person in Isaiah 44 that we just read about. And so this is something we need to ask ourselves and we need to think about. What is our goal in life? What is taking up most of our time? What is taking up most of our energy? What are we living for? Or who are we living for? So now, let's look back in Isaiah chapter 40. Maybe there are some people here who have a mindset that some people in Israel had during Isaiah's day. And so I'd like us to look at now these last few verses of the chapter. I'm hoping this part of the chapter will be an encouragement to us as we think about it. There may be some people who are discouraged with what's going on around them right now. There may be some people who have the mindset that we see in verse 27 in some people in Israel who were believers. In verse 27, we read, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? In other words, there were people in Isaiah's day in Israel who were saying, well, I'm trying to serve God, but maybe God doesn't really understand what I'm going through. I'm trying to serve God, but bad things are happening. Maybe God doesn't see what's happening to me. Maybe God doesn't care what's happening to me. Maybe God, maybe serving God isn't worth it. Maybe God doesn't care to protect my rights. So there were people in Isaiah's day who were going through hard times while they were trying to serve God, and they were discouraged. And so I'd like us to look at the answer that's found in the next few verses and what it means. In verse 28, we're going to read verses 28 to 31 now. This is the answer that God gives to those who say, maybe serving God isn't worth it because bad things are happening even though I'm trying to do what's right. In verse 28, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that hath no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So here, in response to these people that are saying, maybe serving God isn't worth it. Maybe God doesn't see what I'm going through. Isaiah says, God is the creator. He never gets tired. And he's able to give us strength to get through those hard times if we wait on him. He says in verse 27, so there are people that are suffering while they're trying to do what's right. But he says God, in verse 28, he's not weary, he's not overwhelmed. He's able to empower those who are waiting on him. And so there are a few things I'd like us to notice, particularly around verse 31, as we look at this response. In verse 31, it says, They that wait upon the Lord. Who likes to wait? 
Anyone like waiting? Nobody likes waiting. But God expects us to be able to wait. God, we can't expect that God is going to do everything in our timeline at the time we want it to be done. We have to be willing to wait. The second thing I'd like us to notice here, so in verse 29, it says God gives power to the faint. So God is able to give strength. It says to those who have no might, he increases strength. But it's not just that God gives strength. In verse 30, it says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So we see not only does God give strength, but God gives endurance. It's not just that God gives you a burst of strength to get through something and then you get tired again. It says that if we're willing to wait on God, God can give us endurance so that we can persevere, so we can keep moving through the difficulties. Notice also that it does not say that God takes away the problem. Look at this illustration. It says he gives wings as eagles. So you see somebody going down the road and they're tired and there's a problem in front of them. The solution God gives is not that he removes the obstacle from the road so they can keep going. The solution, it says, he gives them wings so they can fly over the problem in order to keep going. The problem is still there, but God allows us to mount up over it. I'd also like you to look at this illustration that he gives. How does he allow us? What kind of... So he says he's given us wings to get over the problem. But look at the detail of the illustration of the wings. What kind of wings he gives. Notice what it does not say. It does not say God will allow them to mount up with wings like a chicken. <laughs> Have you ever watched a chicken fly? They flap their wings a lot, but they don't get very high and they don't get very far. But they put a lot of effort into the flying. But the illustration here, it's an eagle. How does an eagle fly? If you watch an eagle, they don't flap their wings very much. They don't look stressed. They don't look like they're working very hard. And yet they're soaring very high. And it looks almost effortless. And all the problems of the world are ranging below. And as we saw earlier, people are running around like grasshoppers. And the eagle is just flying over them, looking unstressed, passing the problems. I'd like us also to notice that in verse 30, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. If we are trusting in our own strength because, oh, I'm young and strong and I can power through this, eventually we're going to get tired and fall. But if we're trusting in God, it says God can renew our strength after falling. So that even though we've lost our strength and we've fallen, it says that we can get up again and we can walk again and we can run again and we can soar. And so when we're looking at this passage, if we were to summarize what we've just looked at, first of all, our God is amazing. We saw the illustration of God's power and of who God is. Secondly, as we are serving God, we can be pointing other people from that sad state of worshiping man-made things, of worshiping 
stuff in the world. And we can turn them toward a much better state of worshiping the God who made everything. If we look around, we see people around us who are seeking money and power and property and careers. And these are not going to satisfy them. And as a result, we see people with high rates of depression, of anxiety, of all kinds of emotional distress. But when people turn to God, then they're in a better condition spiritually because they are praying to and serving and waiting for the God who made everything, the God who is able to give them the strength to get past those problems. I'd like also to remind us, sometimes, I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, it, it's a little different in the U.S., I, I've experienced this more in Africa, but sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel, I can have the wrong mindset, because I've had situations where I, I almost feel bad, I'm, I'm going to tell this person about the gospel, but I know that if I tell them and they believe they're going to face persecution, they're going to face problems, maybe their friends won't like them anymore, we had problems in Africa where you would, somebody put their faith in Jesus, a young man, for example, I can tell you a couple stories just briefly. There was a young man who, he put his faith in Jesus for salvation. And then, he, he was newly married. And then his father-in-law came and took this man's wife out of his house and said, I'm not going to allow my daughter to be married to a Christian. There were other people who their livelihood was farmers. And when they put their, and they were farming the family land, and when they put their trust in Jesus, the family said, you can't farm our land anymore. So they lost their livelihood. There are other people, not while we were there, but this had happened more distantly in the past, but there have been people in that area who have been martyred for their faith. And there are people who suffer for their faith. And sometimes I can look and I can say, if you're serving God and you're suffering, does that mean that the gospel is making your life worse? But when we're, serving the God, when we're sharing the gospel, we can do it joyfully, but because what we're actually doing is we're encouraging people to turn their attention to the God who's truly able to save and to act. Most people want to be able to talk to a God who hears them, a God who is able to hear what they're going through, a God who, when they pray to him, when they face those problems, is able to empower them to get past the problems. Because everybody in the world, Christian or not, everybody is going to encounter problems. But if we are serving this God, who is the creator, he is able to give us the strength to get through those problems. Amen. And so, the last thing I want to remind us is when we are going through a hard time, maybe sometimes we can experience that sentiment that some people in Isaiah's day were experiencing. Maybe we think, well, maybe God doesn't see what I'm going through. Maybe God doesn't understand what I'm going through. Maybe God doesn't care to protect my rights. Maybe serving God isn't worth it. But the answer we saw here in Isaiah chapter 40, in verses 28 to 31, is that God is the creator. He doesn't get tired. He is able to give us the strength to get through those hard times if we are willing to wait for him. And he is able to renew our strength when we fall, so that even when we fall, even when we mess up, even when we fail, God can give us the strength to get up again. And it says we can walk, we can run, and we can soar. Let's stop and pray. 
Father, we thank you for this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 and for the opportunity to look at it this morning. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God, one who we cannot understand, and yet you are willing to let us bring our problems to you, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you care about us, knowing that you are able to empower us to get past those problems. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in serving you, that we would be willing to point others from that condition of worshiping man-made things, of seeking man-made things instead of you. Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our focus on you and not on things of this world. And as a result, may you use us that others would be pointed to the light of your glorious gospel. Help us, Lord, to be able to wait patiently for you. And as we wait, may we see you working. And may you get all of the glory for everything that you do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.